You're listening to Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple, related technologies, and businesses. Nobody's safe. From my co-host, John Syracuse, I'm Dan Benjamin. This is episode number 24, and uh, we would just like to quickly thank FieldNotesBrand.com, as well as iStockPhoto.com for making this show possible. More on them as we continue. Let's get started. So what's up? How are you doing this week? I'm tired. I'm busy. You're very busy. You're working very hard on your lion extravaganza. Which, when does that come out? You just, you have to be ready for that. So if Apple says it's out on the 12th, you have to get it out on the 12th. They say it's on the 19th. It's the 19th. I heard last night, 14th is the new day they're throwing around. Yep. I, I, I mean, I'm just trying to get it done ASAP. I'm not really worried about the date because the date is not going to make me do it any faster. It's got to get done. Just as soon as it's done, it'll be done. Yeah. And I hope I'm done before the release date. But if I'm not, I'm not. No, you've got to get done. You can't. You can't be like that. I'm, I'm working every possible. Got to get done. Waking it's moment. Got to be done. Yeah. Uh, and traditionally, I haven't always been ready day and date. Sometimes, uh, for the older reviews, I was a week or two behind. It was only recently that I started uh, having the review ready on the day of the release. So it, it seems unthinkable big. to me that you would you would be late on this. Nah. Well, we'll go on. Sometimes we were really late, like because they, it was actually kind of good to be really late because all the other reviews would be out and then people would be anticipating mine, you know, because like I wouldn't get run over by the press of all the other reviews. It would die down and then mine would sort of stand alone. That was the way it was done in the old days. Or is that before, what you used to tell yourself in any case? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> all right. So even though we don't have a main topic today, I do have a whole bunch of random tidbit follow up y things. Okay. And while waiting for you to get your recording stuff ready, I've collected some semblance of notes. So let's get going here. Let's do it. So the first one is uh, Rusty Moyer emailed and asked what speech recognition software I use because he was having trouble with RSI. I don't remember if we talked about this before, but I figure it's worth uh, putting out there because I have a little story about it. Uh, I use Dragon Dictate for the Mac formerly known as Mac Speech or Mac Speech Dictate. Uh, I don't remember what the old product name was, but uh, Mac Speech was this group of people who got together to create speech recognition software for the Mac back in a time when there wasn't a lot or possibly any good software that does that available. And of course, the hard part of doing speech recognition software is the, uh, the recognition engine itself. And I don't know what they did originally. Maybe they had their own recognition engine, but uh, shortly after the company was formed and started having a product, they licensed the speech recognition engine from Dragon, which is the big speech recognition company on the PC side of the world. Uh, And that was a big improvement. And then uh, subsequent to that, the company that owns Dragon, uh, Nuance, bought Mac Speech. So now Nuance owns Dragon Dictate for the PC, and they own Dragon Dictate for the Mac. And Dragon Dictate for the Mac is basically Mac Speech's product rebranded and, you know, improved in small ways. Uh, so that that's what I use because I think it's pretty much the only choice uh, on the Mac for serious speech recognition. And I've been writing the vast majority of my line review with uh, this product. Otherwise, my wrists would be fried. Um, it, it's I, I don't know whether it's worth me 
recommending or not recommending, because the bottom line is, if I say don't use Dragon Dictate as a terrible product, what are your alternatives, really? So, uh, but it's not it's not terrible. Uh, the recognition is actually really good. Uh, it's shockingly good in some cases, but it, the product itself could use some improvement. First of all, it's slow. You have this little slider where you can pick between accuracy and speed. And maybe it's because I, I like to have it pushed more towards the accuracy side, but I don't, I don't understand what the benefit of speed would be if it's going to mistranscribe what I'm saying. So, you know, it's kind of like programming correctness first and then speed second. So uh, it can lag behind your speech. You, you may have to pause for it to catch up every once in a while. Uh, and the other thing is that it, it's very bad at handling manual editing. Uh, inevitably, you have to manually edit stuff that you say because it's very difficult especially when you're writing about technology to say things that the speech recognition software doesn't understand like acronyms or technology words and you can teach it technology i was going to ask if you can so you can give it you can give it some words and it'll remember them like the way you yeah. would teach a spelling dictionary how to remember things in fact you can feed it entire text documents and say learn everything in here but it's still dependent on its understanding of how those words are supposed to sound so you can go to an individual word that's not spelled like it sounds and train it manually by saying the word three times and it will learn the word but and and i've done that and it helps a lot but inevitably there will be things you do have to manually edit one example is as you can imagine i've been saying the word lion a lot and it is just impossible to get this piece of software to transcribe lion as a as the word lion like the big cat and b capitalized it's always does always does it lowercase and it always does it as line l-i-n-e or l-i-e-n or sometimes l-y-o-n and once in a blue moon it does l-i-o-n and then maybe even more rare than that it does capital l-i-o-n and i tried to train it so many times it's just i just give up so i'm i'm constantly going back with the cursor and editing sentences that way or uh, the other thing is it does curly quotes and i haven't figured out how to stop it from doing curly quotes i wanted to do straight ones don't send me email about that it's just the way i work um they can if Ars Technica wanted to change them to Curly to do public publication, I wouldn't object, but I don't think they even do. I think they just stick to straight. But at any rate, since I'm writing in Monaco 9 point, the straight quote, uh, straight quotes look better than the Curly ones, so I like them to be straight, so I will go back and fix them. But when you go back and edit things, unless you're very, very careful to correctly interleave manual editing with speaking, the program gets confused and doesn't know where it's typing and can accidentally select a bunch of text and delete it or move the cursor around or stop responding. So that that I'm told this process of being able to use the mouse and the keyboard combined with speaking is much, much better on Windows than it is on the Mac. I don't know that to be true, but that's what I've always heard. But I can tell you that it's pretty annoying on the Mac. Occasionally, I have to switch away from the application I'm in, go to Dragon Dictate's little notepad, say the words testing one, two, three to sort of reset the system and say, OK, you're, you're listening to me again. Then go back to my document, put the insertion point at the end and start talking. Uh, and my little story about Dragon Dictate is when I was using it as Mac speech, uh, there's a dialogue in the thing that lets you pick the button you want to use to toggle the microphone on and off, which I use frequently because you don't want it to be hearing you cough or talk to other people in the room or whatever. And the key I picked for that is the upper right-hand corner of the Apple Aluminum Extended Keyboard, uh, which is the F19 key. Just because it's easy to hit without looking, I can just re- feel for the top right corner of the keyboard and hit that key to toggle the microphone very easily. Uh, and that's what I had in Mac Speech. And when they upgraded to Dragon Dictate, that my configuration got changed. I guess they updated the preference file or whatever, and I went into the, the preferences to set it to F19 again, and it, I couldn't get it to accept F19 as the key that I wanted to use. It would just not register, and it wasn't one of the preset options. So I wrote into support, and I said, hey, I was using Mac Speech. Now I've upgraded to Dragon Dictate. I used to use F19, but now I can't anymore. 
this was when was this September of uh, 2010. So I got the little automated email that says you're in the support queue, and then a couple of days later, I got a response from dictate support at maxspeech.com, and they said there is no F19 key on keyboards. That was the extent of their reply. <laughs> so me being the email jerk that I am, uh, cropped up a picture from Apple's website of Apple's keyboard showing the F19 key and sent it back to them. Uh, and then there was a couple more days and then they replied eventually and said, we are trying to locate a keyboard with F19 in order to test. <laughs> no apology, no like, oops, that was dumb of us to say. We should have, you know. And I, I waited and waited and didn't hear back. And eventually I took it upon myself to get F19 in there because like, I, you can set it to like F11 or 12 or 13, but not F19. So I had to figure out what the key code emitted by Apple's keyboard was for F19 and then go and edit this binary plist file and jam in the, the value I wanted. And I have in the show notes uh, a link to a support forum thread on their website where I eventually posted my solution. Basically involved uh, making a binary plist containing the correct key code value and then base64 encoding it and then sticking that value inside a plist. <laughs> And so anyone, anyone who's Googling on the web for toggle microphone F19 should find this result and they can manually fix it, but still no reply for over a year later from, from uh, the Dragon people saying, oh, we're going to upgrade the next version to let you use F19 or anything like that. The things oh, that geeks will do to get their keyboard combos. Well, it, yeah, but, you know, it's, it's just bad support. You shouldn't... If they it's close actually the pretty ticket, bad. If they close the ticket based on me finding a solution, like that's not the, the solution is get your programmers to allow F19 to be used. It's not rocket science. It used to work. I'm not asking for the moon, you know, don't close the ticket because I solved my, I don't even know if they closed. I never get any reply. It was just, you know, they stopped responding. So that's uh, speech recognition. Uh, what I've got next here is I've got John Rubenstein's letter to the troops about WebOS, uh, Apple's $50 Thunderbolt cable, and then a whole bunch of stuff on Google+. Any preference? Well, I, I think we do it right in that order. All right. And I would love to hear if you have any comments about Final Cut Pro 10 or X, as people are calling it. I'd love to hear that. Well, we'll see if we get to it. Okay. Um, so this happened uh, just while I was getting ready for the show. I saw a tweet go by. Uh, John Rubenstein is the, uh, the former head of hardware for Apple who left Apple to become... Is he the CEO of Palm? I guess he was. But uh, now he's the, the head of all things Palm inside of HP. And he wrote a letter to... Now, does that, seem, does that seem like a good move now to you? Oh, sure. For him, yeah, definitely a good move. I think it's a good, still a better move for him? Yeah, well, because first of all, I'm assuming that money is no longer an issue with him. So you're going to say, well, you could have been had more money inside Apple, you know. Nah, he doesn't care about money yeah. anymore. So, so money's not an issue. Second... And at He's what point, like John, remember how, how before you told me that if you all of a sudden had a lot of money, you wouldn't want to work anymore? How much is that figure? What would you need to have, John Syracuse? Uh, I, maybe $10 million. $10 million? My, my wife said, I was talking to my wife about it. She said it's more than that. So maybe she has plans that I don't know about. But yeah, $10 million would probably do it, right? $10 million and you would feel like you'd never have to work again. Yeah, yeah. I think we're going to get you there. All right. I'll, I'll watch my mail for the check. Yeah, work on it. We'll work on it. So, uh, so yeah, I think it was a good move for him because he'd pretty much done what he was tasked to do at Apple. He was the head of hardware. Hardware became very successful. Apple became very successful. He reaped the rewards, but he wanted to try something different. He wanted to be the guy in charge for once, and, you know, so off he went. I don't know if, if the executive team at Apple felt betrayed by him leaving, but 
I don't think they should. He just wanted to do something different, and he wanted to be the guy in charge for once, and he wanted to give it a shot. Uh, so anyway, he's reading all the reviews of the new touchpad that came out recently, uh, Palm's tablet, or HP's tablet, and sent an email, an internal email, which I assume was meant to be leaked. Uh, it's hard to tell with these things. So usually when these things leak, it's because the people who wrote them know they're going to leak. So it's kind of written to the internal audience and also to the press. And right. he compared uh, the reviews that uh, the touchpad and webOS are getting to the early reviews that macOS 10 got, and he has some quotes from reviews. I'm assuming they're from like high-profile reviews like the Wall Street Journal and New York Times, but the quotes are, overall, the software is sluggish. There, was no quali- there are no quality apps to use, so it won't last. Uh, it's just not making sense. And then uh, he, he provides them with, uh, with no context, and he says, it's hard to believe these quotes were actually about macOS 10. Now, it's not hard to believe. Uh, <laughs> it, may- it makes plenty of sense. In fact, I wrote similar things in my early reviews. It was just, you know, remember what Mac OS X was like in the early days. And he says our situations are very similar. Uh, and just as Mac OS X overcame these obstacles to become this great thing, so will we. Uh, and Glenn Fleischman on Twitter, who was the one who led me to this uh, story, uh, tweeted that his comparison ignores the fact that other desktop OSs were crappy 10 years ago, too. Whereas now WebOS is competing with iOS, which is decidedly not crappy. So it's a different, it's a different playing field. That, that's that's Glenn's assertion that basically macOS 10 was bad, but everything was bad, and macOS 10 was clearly the next step. It just wasn't ready yet. Versus, I can kind of see it. Versus WebOS now is not the first next generation mobile platform. iOS uh, filled that role, and WebOS is coming in late to a market that iOS created and then that iOS dominates in terms of product quality, at least, if not sales numbers. Uh, so it's a little bit of spin, uh, but there is some truth to that. And, and the thing with WebOS is that it it does have that macOS 10 feel and that it's like, boy, it would be so great if only, and then you list two or three things. And the two or three things are always, it's it's too sluggish, doesn't quite feel right, some things don't quite work yet, Right. If you look at the screenshots or demonstrations, you say, yes, everything about that is awesome. In fact, it does many things better than iOS. But when you actually use it, it just doesn't feel like they used to say about Mac OS X. It just doesn't feel snappy. It doesn't have the snap. The snap with the spelled T-E-H or the snappy. Uh, and that's true. Um, but Mac OS X improved a lot in the first couple of years. And WebOS, like every time a new device comes out, like this will this will be the one where WebOS won't feel slower than like the touchpad comes out. Surely they'll have a good CPU in there and WebOS will feel fast and this will make the difference. But apparently, no, it still feels sluggish. So Why? Now, why is that? I don't know. Like I used to wonder the same thing about Mac OS X because it seemed like a long time when we were going through it. Why, why can't it get it faster? It was all these fantasies with Mac OS X of like, well, they're going to they're gonna include a dedicated chip in the next line of Macs that will make Aqua faster. <laughs> that it's going to be a special embedded GPU or a special support from video card vendors or that'll make it faster. I mean, eventually, a combination of factors made Mac OS X feel faster. GPU support was one of them, but there was never any dedicated chip. And there was you know faster CPUs, improving their code. Uh, many things combined to make it faster. With at what WebOS, point? At what, what was the turning point for you, John? Where you where you went from saying this should feel faster to this feels fast. This is good. Yeah. This is the way it should it, feel. It was, it was kind of a frog boiling situation where you don't notice while you're in it that uh, that it's happening, but then you just wake up one day and you realize if you're a frog that you're boiled, and if you're using Mac OS X that you know hey it's not it's not so bad anymore. Like it, it, there wasn't a big giant change every release took a, a significant chunk off of it i think 10.1 was probably the biggest jump because 10.0 was just dog slow and 10.1 was such a big jump 
Uh, it was still unacceptably slow, but it, that was probably the biggest gap because 10.0 was rushed out. Uh, or it seemed like it was rushed out. It was just, you know, not optimized. Correctness first, speed later. So, uh, but they slowly added that GPU support with uh, the, the GPU-based compositing was was another big jump. And then finally the Quartz 2D, or whatever we're called, Quartz 2D Extreme, Quartz GL, uh, the thing that does a little bit of drawing on the GPU as well. But by that point, Macs themselves had gotten faster. Intel, the Intel uh, transition really helped things because that was a big bump in, in speed just from changing the Intel chips uh, because the PowerPCs had stagnated for a while. So I think by the time you got uh, GPU-based compositing, some ability to GPU-based drawing, and fast Intel CPUs, when you had all three of those, then it was like now it's acceptably fast. And I don't remember what release that was. Maybe it was like 10.5-ish, probably somewhere around there. Why can't WebOS get its act together? Well, it's not quite as easy on, on the mobile platform because you can't just keep getting bigger, hotter, faster CPUs. You have power constraints and battery life and stuff like that. So uh, it, it's not as easy to make the big jumps uh, in CPU speed as it was on the desktop. Uh, and maybe it just hasn't had enough time yet. Uh, I don't know. I don't know enough about their technology stack to know where the hangup is. Like, are they doing GPU accelerated drawing? They must be because you couldn't possibly do all the compositing that they're doing on a, on a mobile CPU wouldn't work. Uh, Maybe the lag has to do with, I don't know, some sort of memory allocation issue. Maybe it's just a, too many layers on the, the layer cake that makes up their stack where you have WebKit. Uh, uh, well, they have the, their API, fra- their UI framework running on top of WebKit, which runs on top of their operating system, which runs on top of the CPU. You know, I don't know why it's slow, but every review I read is that it's still sluggish. And maybe it's the same situation. I haven't owned the devices, so I can't say that even though it's still slow, is the touchpad faster than the Pre-2, which is faster than the Pre? Like, is there, is it making progress? I have to assume that it is making progress. It just hasn't crossed the, the threshold of acceptability yet. But I'm rooting for them. A lot of people are rooting for them because they have the most interesting-looking, most sort of cohesive UI of all the iOS competitors. It's just a shame they can't get their hardware and software act together. You know. Do you think they'll ever be a, a real competitor to Apple iOS? I think the the a HP real, purchase... a real competitor, real competitor. Like people, people, market analysts will write how well HP is doing as a result of this, and Apple is feeling threatened. Finally, and I mean, do you, that's yeah, what I mean by success. Do you anticipate yeah. that? It's tough to say because. They may be at the point now where they're never going to get critical mass just because they're so far behind the eight ball. But I think if HP is patient with them and HP continues to be successful enough to support them, like having a sugar daddy like that, HP, the biggest PC vendor, assuming they can continue to sell their crappy printers and PCs uh, for enough profit to keep Palm going and assuming they don't give up, uh, if they play the long game, Palm could emerge as the third viable competitor to uh, to iOS. You know, so you've got iOS, Android, Windows Mobile, and Palm. And if they stick in there, I think there's no reason that Palm can't be right in there and start getting good reviews. Now, whether they'll ever be able to overcome the Android market share lead, the same question about Windows uh, Mobile or Windows Phone Seven Series, whatever the hell they're calling it, is. Everyone thinks they have an interesting product, but can they overcome the lead that the their competitors have? So they're kind of in the same boat as Microsoft. Microsoft obviously has deep pockets and is dedicated to Windows Phone. If HP is equally dedicated, I see no reason that it can't be competing with Windows Phone 
for third place many years down the line. And who knows, Android could stumble, the fragmentation thing could become an issue, who knows what's going on over there. So, the other story I have is Apple's... No, wait, but, you know what, I have a note here. I wanted to ask you a question before we jump to the next story. Uh, right. Back to your, your discussion of using voice recognition software. And you said, you know, you, people should know that your operating system reviews generally tend to be many, 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 many pages. They're incredibly detailed, very long. And you mentioned that if you had been typing this yourself, you'd be fried. You would be unable to use your hands. You'd have claws for hands. Sort of like what they have when they're out on the, the uh, crab fishing boats, when the, the greenhorns go out there like on Deadliest Catch and after the first few days or, or whatever, their, their hands are just like claws. That would be you. Yep. But you write code for a living. You're at, you're at a desk writing code all day long, right? You're not using voice recognition to write the code, are you? No. That would definitely annoy my neighbors. It would never work. It would be insane. weird. That would be really weird. Especially in Perl, right? Yeah, you could do it if the if the if there was a piece of software dedicated to that. And actually, the speech recognition is pretty good about doing punctuation, like when you say comma, period, and stuff like that. Although I did have a problem at one point in the review where I was trying to say the word period. Uh, and if there's some sort of a verbal escape sequence to let the software know that I'm going to say period, but I need I mean P R I O D, not insert the piece of punctuation. Uh, I don't know what that escape is, so I just type the word period. But yeah, similar, you know. Uh, open curly brace, uh, new line, tab, tab, you know, you could say that, I suppose. So you are typing in your office. You're just typing, yes. but I guess you're typing much less when you're writing code than you would be if you were writing a, a long article. Now, it's a similar amount. It's just that uh, I have a certain number of words in me per day that I can maintain while still being healthy and uh, doing doing the article in addition would push you well yes, beyond that. It push, pushes me over the limit. So yeah. But definitely. if you had taken off work, for example, maybe then you could type it. Maybe, although the volume is so high and for so long, because like working as a programmer, especially with server side stuff, your your time is split between writing code and like deploying code or debugging problems in production and stuff like that, where you're not always just banging out code. A lot of your time is spent, you know. It's still typing because you're at a command line, but it's not the same. It's like do something, then watch a result, then do something else and watch a result. Or an investigative typing at a command prompt is different than straight programming. And even programming, you're you know going to the web browser to look up some uh, thing in a reference or something like that. Uh, whereas when you're typing prose, if you're on a roll, you can just be going straight type, 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 type. You know. So I think even if I took off, I would still want to use speech recognition. It's just it's. I'm not that great of a typist, so I can speak in speech recognition faster than I can type. Uh, and it's just more comfortable, you know. You just you talk and words appear on the screen and your hands don't have to do anything. It's a beautiful thing. All right, continue with your next topic, please. All right, so this is Apple's $50 Thunderbolt cable. You know, Thunderbolt, we talked about a few shows back. It's now shipping on Apple's products, and then everyone was like, okay, so where are the things that I can plug into my Thunderbolt? <laughs> right, big deal. And, yeah. And finally, there are products like there are RAID uh, arrays available for people and maybe just some regular hard drives, too. And they're getting well-reviewed. There's a Macworld review of some RAID products showing that it was like ridiculously faster than the FireWire 800 uh, predecessor product or a comparable product. So, you know, that's great. Thunderbolt is living up to its reputation. It seems great. But the, the product in question, I believe, did not even ship with a Thunderbolt cable. And they just said, 
if you want a Thunderbolt cable, buy it from Apple for 50 bucks, And that's what Apple offers, a $50 cable, which is not unprecedented because if, for example, you wanted to hook up a second-generation iPod Touch to your television through uh, component video cables, the, the four connectors with like the blue, green, I forget what the colors are, but it's not, not composite, which is the crappy one. Component was the good one before HDMI came along. So if you wanted to do that, you had to pay them $50 for a cable which seemed obscene, but that's what they charge. So now Thunderbolt, they own $50 for this cable too. Not unprecedented. Uh, but as the Ars Technica story I put in the show notes uh, shows, this $50 cable at least has something to justify the fact that it costs more than 5 bucks. I don't know if it justifies $50. It probably certainly doesn't, but at least you could say, well, I can see why this cable costs more than a USB cable. Why? What about, it? Because, what about it? It's because they have firmware in there. There's little chip in the cable. In the cable, in the connector, I don't know if there's two of them on both ends, the iFixit tore it apart, and there's some pictures in the Ars Technica article of the, of the teardown. I'm assuming there's a chip like this in both ends, but it's a tiny little chip, you know, but it's, it's active components inside these cables. It's not just a piece of metal wrapped in rubber with connectors at the end. Uh, and supposedly, that's, uh, this is called active cabling, where the cable doesn't just lay there. It, does, it participates in, in the, uh, the process. <laughs> So, so what is it doing? What is the firmware doing? So uh, apparently active cabling is commonly used when the data rate is really high. And these type of chips are there to sort of calibrate the, the, the signals, uh, you know, detect how much noise and attenuation there is over the cable run and calibrate the, the, the signaling to, for, for maximum uh, clarity, basically. Hmm. Uh, it, you know, it, I don't think those chips cost more than 50 cents each or something. Uh, but it makes uh, it does make the cables more complicated to put together. There is some tiny little board that the chip is on, and everything has to be all correctly integrated. And, John, you do, you, do you need that kind of intelligence? Do you need an active cable for Thunderbolt, or can you just get a regular old cable? According to Intel, Thunderbolt connections can only be used with a Thunderbolt cable, and Thunderbolt cables have these things. All in. have them. Yeah, so I well, we, so, this is the only this is the only table available for purchase. So yes, currently they all have them in the. No, what I mean is, should, are we gonna are we gonna start seeing cables coming out that are less money that don't have this, and will they right. work as well, or will 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 everybody be spending fifty bucks on a cable forever, or for eventually it'll be thirty five bucks or something? My impression is that all Thunderbolt cables will have a chip in it. I also assume that all Thunderbolt cables will not cost fifty dollars forever because once you know Monoprice and and the the, the Asian. Uh, manufacturing machine gets their hands on uh, the technology to make these cables, which I assume they will, the price will come down, down, down. But I think all of them will have this chip inside them. Uh, my understanding is that if you don't have this chip, you're basically a mini DisplayPort cable and it won't work. You can't use a mini DisplayPort cable. Even mm-hmm. though the connectors are the same, you can't use a mini DisplayPort cable to connect your Thunderbolt RAID that you got or whatever. And what's the scoop on adapters? Are we seeing any like Thunderbolt to FireWire adapters yet? I haven't seen any. Uh, again, all, in theory, all these things are possible, and I think as soon as it's kind of like firewire cables, where as soon as the 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 rest of the world gets their hands on these things, you'll see a flurry of products coming out. A lot of them crappy, I'm sure, but the prices will go down, and the diversity will appear. And like just like today, it's it's a lot easier to find a firewire. You can go into like Best Buy probably and find a firewire cable, whereas that was not true for maybe a year after firewire was introduced. Maybe probably even years. get them at a drugstore now. Right. Um, so it, Thunderbolt will take a while to be adopted and spread in that way. It probably won't be like USB, which spread much faster because USB, USB was super cheap to produce. These obviously are not super cheap. You need, you need chips. You need to make chips. Um, so 
John, explain to me, though, why wouldn't Monoprice or a company like that that's already Belkin, whoever, who's already good at making cables, come out and say, you know what, we're we're going to take the lead in this. We're going to be the first ones to come out with high-quality, affordable Thunderbolt cables. Here they are. They're cheaper than Apple. We've got them all. Anything you want. We've got all the adapt. Why isn't there a company that's like stepping out doing that? Why are we here hoping Apple, you know, thank you, Apple, for giving us a $50 cable? Well, they can't do that on their own because they... They just have to license it from Intel, though. Right. Well, they have to They have to license something from somebody. I don't know who owns the rights to what, but the bottom line is... Send them a letter. We'd like to start doing it and... I guarantee you there have been many, many inquiries made to all of the parties who control the licensing for this, but doesn't mean that you're going to get a prompt response. I also don't know what the lead times are on doing this type of thing. They could do a thing where Intel says, or whoever whoever's manufacturing these little chips could have the exclusive contract to manufacture them, and you have to buy through them for some short period of time. You never know what the deals are, uh, the business deals are about this. So it's not for lack of trying. I guarantee you that everybody involved in the industry who makes cables is trying to make cables for Thunderbolt, uh, and probably will also try to sell them for, you know, $40 instead of 50 because the profit margin has still got to be huge. So everyone wants in on this gold rush of new fancy cables and everyone wants to get in early as possible before the prices go down, before the race to the bottom so they can sell them for 40 or 30 bucks even when they, you know, which is still a huge profit margin when the thing probably costs 5 bucks to make or something. I think Thunderbolt yeah. was the name of uh, Tonto's horse. It's before my time. It's Thunderbolt, time. something like that. Some cartoon so- about on TV about a dog named thunderbolt where he's he thinks he's uh, a superhero he's really not a super he plays one on tv or something like that you see that hong hong fooey number one super guy no this is uh this is new there's some kind of uh disney cgi oh no, no. don't watch kind of that. white dog right, something to think about yeah maybe our first sponsor today is field notes brand made in the usa memo books and more now featuring the American Tradesman Edition, a limited release for summer that's sturdy and reliable and comes with a carpenter pencil. So get one and then build something that will last 100 years. Now these things are available individually and as part of a yearly subscription. They're the official notebooks of 5x5, of course. And uh, being such, there's a coupon code. Heard it from Dan, all one word. Use that and you'll save 25 bucks on a subscription, which I highly recommend. Field Notes brand. I'm not writing it down to remember it later. I'm writing it down to remember it now. All right. And so the final thing I've got is Google+. Plus. Are you on the Google+. Plus? I am. I was invited. Uh, I forget who invited me, but thank you, whoever it was. I, I mean, I should remember that. But whoever it was, thank you. I'm on there. Got signed up. And uh, I, I think I kind of know what to do with it. Yeah, I put you in circles. Yeah, I put you in there. Right, yeah, we put each other in circles. They were like rats in a pack, the two of us. Yeah. What does that do for us? What are we doing next? So the, the way I want to talk about Google Plus is start by talking about Facebook, which is the obvious comparison product. And I was thinking about why Facebook is so popular and secondarily why I don't use it. I have a Facebook account. I just don't use it at all. Uh I was thinking that Facebook is popular for the same reasons that Apple's best products are popular. It's because Facebook helps people be successful doing something that before Facebook was too complicated for non-geeks to do with computers. 
Uh, and you can you can help people be successful with technology in in two different ways. One is the the Apple approach, which is to be really easy to understand and use. Like the iPod just had one big wheel and a button, uh, not a lot of controls, not a lot of options, completely integrated software. Like it was easy enough to use. It was a big step up from these little MP3 players made by whatever Samsung or whatever with tiny little buttons and complicated software and a little LCD screen and little cursor keys and stuff like that. Uh, so the the iPod succeeded in that way. The other way you can you can help people be successful with technology products is to be so incredibly popular that help to work this thing is readily available. Um, and Facebook had the kind of like pressure help where not only was help available, you were forced to use it because they would say you got to get on Facebook because your whole family is on Facebook. And if you can't figure it out, I'll show you how to do it. But just get on Facebook. Get on Facebook. I'll get on the phone with you. I'll tell you how to use it. Or for the, for the older people. If you want to see pictures of your grandkids, they're on Facebook. So there's some great motivation for you to figure out this Facebook thing, how to get on there and figure out how to see those pictures, right? Uh, Now, Facebook also had a combination of being easy to use or easier to use than the alternatives in that if you are non-technical and you want to put pictures of your grandkids online and you're not a Mac user, your options are kind of scary. Whereas Facebook was like a one-stop shop. Sign up. We'll suck you into our world. And it may not be the greatest UI in the world, but eventually you'll figure out how to get your pictures online. Whereas before you were like, well, do I want to get use a web hosting company or some software product to put pictures up or Microsoft's picture viewer? Right? You know, it was just a confusing world of stuff. And Facebook was a unifying force and saying, here, do your stuff at this place. Uh, now, I was thinking about the reasons I don't like Facebook and don't use it. Well, one of the reasons, as silly as it might be, but it's valid, is that everyone else is using Facebook. Like the non-geeks, it doesn't feel like a place for people like me. It feels like a place for everybody else. So in the us and them world of technology geekdom, it, Facebook feels like the other. Uh, and the, the, the reason, I don't, I don't know why technical people aren't all on Facebook. I know some of them are, but the, one of the reasons I think it didn't catch on is because especially if, you're, if you work in the web, is that Facebook doesn't feel like part of the web. And I was trying to think about why it doesn't feel like part of the web. But it, because it certainly doesn't. And I think if you talk to most web developers or designers, they, they, will, they will agree. One of, one of the things is that there's no obvious URLs for most things. The, the, the fundamental part of the web is if you can see something in a web page, it should have a URL and you should be able to send that URL to somebody else. And anything that breaks that doesn't feel like the web. Like if someone goes to that URL and they have to sign up for something to see it, that doesn't feel like the web. Or if there's no URL at all for an individual comment, you can go just go to the page. Or if the URL is just for the top level of, of your comment stream, but not to a particular post. Or, or even if there are URLs available, but it's not obvious how to get them. You know, if that, that doesn't feel like the web. That feels more like an application. And that's fine for something like email, like Gmail application. If there's no obvious URL for message number 55, you're not going to be sending people URLs to your own email. That's, that's supposed to feel like an application and not like a place or a site on the web. But Facebook is supposed to be a site. You're putting your pictures up there. You're talking with people and all that stuff. It just doesn't feel like uh, part of the web. And there's also, it doesn't feel like there's ownership of the content. It's like you give your stuff to Facebook and then Facebook does whatever the hell it wants with it. Like it, they rearrange it. It appears in different places. They change their UI. Uh, if you want your old content, it's not always easy to go figure out how to dig it back out. Uh, you're never sure if the URLs that you are using are going to be stable from version to version of the software. Uh, it, it just it just feels like you're giving up ownership for the privilege of being in this Facebook place with everybody else. Now, how Google Plus 
feels different. I don't know if it's better, but different. It feels different to me uh, because it is a little bit better in some of these areas. So the, it feels like slightly more part of the web. They are better about providing URLs for everything. I, they still have the problem where if you have a URL to something, it's only shared with circles A and B, and you send it to somebody and they're not in those circles. They have to sign in to see if they're in those circles, and then they can see it or not. But at least they're trying. Uh, they And Google does have, on day one, which is impressive, complete data export for everything you put into Google+. So you can go there, and I think they call it the data liberation something or other, where you can export all your data immediately. Your data is not trapped in Google+. If you want it to come out, you can get it out. Uh, and it integrates with other Google services that we all consider part of the web already. Like it integrates with Google Search, and Google Search is clearly part of the web. You can pass those URLs around. Everybody uses it. It's not a little walled garden. It's part of the web. And it integrates with their mail product too, which is more like an application, but it's still something that people use every day. Uh, so it feels like something we accept. Uh, and someone was pointing out one of the clever things that Google did with Google Plus is provide invites to tech journalists because the tech journalists now feel like they're an exclusive club that does include them. So it feels like it's mostly geeks at this point. It's a bunch of tech nerds and other people who were invited to join and they give invites to their tech nerds friends. And so lo and behold, where we all weren't using Facebook, suddenly we're all on Google Plus just because we feel like it's just us here. Obviously, if Google is successful with Google Plus, that will change, but they've got their foot in the door of geekdom. You know, where It's kind of like Twitter. Twitter did the same thing in a lot of other services. Twitter was just, it was made by geeks and the first people to use it were geeks and we felt like it was our place. And even though now, you know, celebrities are there and uh, everyone else, the, the general public has come and taken over, we still feel like, uh, at least I think geeks still feel like Twitter is our place because we were there first. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, and it also feels, in a way, Twitter feels big enough that it can be our place, and you can enjoy it, and you can use it essentially the same way that you could before, uh, even though Ashton Kutcher is using it. You know, that like that doesn't, that doesn't influence it, but that is starting to change, I think, and I think Twitter is responding much more now to what the masses want or the way that, yeah, and that, that actually goes back, I think, to your, to your point about Google+, which is there's almost a sense that because Google is Google, it might appeal to the masses, but it'll always have that sort of engineering geeky flair. Like everybody that I know has a Gmail account pretty much. And probably most of them, unlike Facebook, everybody I know has a Facebook account. Only some of them use it. I have one. I rarely use it. Uh, you, you have one. You never use it. But everybody that I know pretty much has one. Whereas I think with something like like Google Plus, I think there's this hope that it'll always be this engineer style thing by the geeks. And and I think that might hurt Google in the long run, but I think the geeks will like it for that reason. Whereas Twitter has changed. It's changed a lot because of the mass market appeal of it. Lady Gaga's on Twitter now. Yeah, I heard somebody say this was outside the realm of what I think is reasonable at this point, but someone was mentioning that since they've seen all their tech geek friends storm onto Google Plus and, uh, during the launch to give it a spin. Uh, the same thing happened with Google Wave, by the way. Everyone went to try it out, but the difference with Wave is they tried it out and said, oh, I don't get it, and quickly left. But with Google Plus, that didn't happen. So uh, with all the geeks storming to it, someone said, well, at least if Twitter continues to be annoying to us geeks, we have an alternative. Now, I don't see Google Plus as remotely an alternative to Twitter, but it just shows the disaffection being sown among tech geeks uh, with the recent Twitter moves and their, and their changes. So yeah, maybe people are feeling Twitter 
isn't the place that it once was and looking for alternatives. I don't think Google Plus is it, and I don't really feel that way about Twitter, but some other people do apparently. Uh, it makes some sense. Uh, the other thing about Google Plus compared to Facebook from a geek perspective is it's not crapped up with ugly ads like those stupid get a flatter belly things where you got to see some person's flabby belly or those dumb drawings. or you, you, Everyone knows those annoying ads. If you don't run an ad blocker, you see them everywhere. And even if you do run an ad blocker, one sneaks through every once in a while. And Facebook has those kind of ads on it. And geeks don't like that. We, we just don't want to be bothered by that type of stuff. We don't want to see sexy women who are waiting in your area call now. You know, <laughs> that's not what we want to see. It's just it's it's degrading. It's insulting. And you know it what I think? Our intelligence. I think geeks are much more willing, John, than than let's say the masses, the non-geek masses. I think geeks are much more willing to pay to not have to see that kind of thing. Yeah, pay or seek. You know, do other trade-offs right. because the trade-offs that are not is it significant to the geeks because it, well, it's more complicated to use. Well, geeks have no problem with that. Regular people do. All right. Um, but so far, I mean, it's not Google is an ad company. They want ads to be everywhere. And there probably are. If there are ads in Google Plus, I haven't seen them because I have such incredible ad banner blindness that I just simply don't see them. But all I know is they're definitely not ugly image ads like you see on Facebook, right? So I, there are ads in Gmail. But if you ask me where the ads are in Gmail, I could not tell you. I literally do not see them, right? And they don't interfere with the use of the product. They're not being shoved in the middle of my email threads or anything like that. Wherever the ads are, they're not bothering me. So geeks have that ability to ignore Google's text ads, and it's harder to ignore Facebook's things. And there's no, so far, again, so far, there's no application API in Google+. There's no super poking, no Farmville, no Mafia Wars, no trading fruit with people, none of that BS that all our family and friends are doing that we find inane and stupid. Uh, that is not in Google+, yet. Maybe, some, maybe they have something planned for that. Certainly, they had an API for Wave where you're supposed to write these little things that work in Wave, these little bots and all those other. So maybe that technology will come over to Google+, Plus, but for now, it's not there. Uh, it's kind of like uh, one of the reasons that people flocked to Google to begin with, especially geeks, was that they just had a really spare homepage. It didn't look like AltaVista or Yahoo. It wasn't crapped up with all this stuff. It was just a search field, their logo, and a button or two. Uh, and Google+, Plus feels like that. Uh, and Google Plus is integrated with the stuff that geeks already use. Like you said, everyone you know has a Gmail account, or every geek you know. Uh, it integrates with Gmail, which I already use. It integrates with Google Search, which everybody uses. It integrates with Google Calendar, which I happen to use. Uh, so unlike Facebook, where it's like, leave the web and come to Facebook and do all your crap here. Like, Facebook is like a trap. I think of Facebook as, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know the, the correct analogy, but it's a, it's a people check in, but they don't check out. It's like, leave the It's kind of like AOL. Don't go to the web. Go to AOL. It's a separate place, and we have our own little microcosm. Everything that's out on the web, we have our equivalent of it here. Don't ever leave. Just stay forever. It's wonderful. Sit down. And I don't like that, and most geeks don't like that, whereas uh, Google Plus feels like it's just one more thing being added to and integrated with all those other things that we already use that we already accept as part of the web. You know that, that It's not a trap. It's not a place where you just go and check in and don't check out again. Uh, and one, one uh, example of this is that you can add people to your circles and all their other little things they have in Google+, even if they're not members of Google+, because you can add them just by their email address. And how does it know the email addresses of people you might be interested in? Well, because you email them with Gmail, and they can say, well, here, here's a list of all the people that you emailed with Gmail, and we think, based on whatever, that these might be people that you want to add to your circles. And don't worry about if they don't have a Google+, invite or anything. You can still add them to the circle, and when they get a Google+, invite, presumably we'll, we'll connect the dots and, you know, Put, plug in all the wires so that it, it becomes the person who actually joined uh, Google+. Plus. Uh, it's nice. And, and like, uh, like the rest of Google's stuff, Google's infrastructure advantage comes into play here in that performance has been great, even though we've had this rush of people. And now they did stop giving out invites, 
saying they had to try to be careful about, you know, this is their first release. Maybe they don't want to have people storming it or whatever. Maybe it, the performance is great because they stopped giving out invites. But whatever they're doing, as usual, the servers didn't go down. They didn't become slow. I didn't stop using it because I'd click something and nothing would happen. That happened a lot with Wave uh, in the early days. Another reason that Wave failed was that it didn't have the usual Google Snap. Google... Google's strength, big strength, is their scalability and their infrastructure. And despite all these tech geeks clicking madly and adding people to circles and throwing things around and getting invites and doing all this stuff over the past few days, no performance problems. Everything is snappy. And their client-side stuff is really fancy and impressive with all these nice effects they have. All this stuff is being done client-side, so it doesn't have to do with their infrastructure. But it shows they know what they're doing programming-wise on the web. Uh, one, One of the coolest things was the feedback button they have. I don't know if you've tried this, but there's a little feedback thing in the lower right corner of the page where you can... Uh, send them complaints or whatever. So I clicked it with no expectations, figuring it's going to bring up a mail form and I could complain about something. What it actually brings up is a UI where you can, it dims the whole page and then you can highlight regions of the page by undimming them with a little draggable rectangle. So you can highlight regions of the page and then it has another tool, the blackout tool, where you can put sort of black redaction lines over over the parts that you don't want to see because if you look, it could be personal information. It could be like a thread with people you're talking about or your family members and you don't want to send that to Google. So you basically mark up the current thing you see in your web browser in the web browser with web-based tools and then it gives you a preview and says this is what we're going to send we're going to send this graphic and now write your text and you write your text say the thing that i highlighted annoys me because blah 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 and then you send it out and it sends the image that you just created with their web-based tool along with your description which is a which is a pretty darn impressive feedback tool like if you think about the comparatively caveman-like feedback tools that Apple has. And they have complete control of the, of the platform. They can make client-side software for developers to make, you know, instead we just get a bunch of text fields with a format we're supposed to use. And then we have to go to the separate application to get a system profile report and shove it in there. You know, this is a richer experience than available with nati- on the native desktop from people like Apple. And they're doing it in a web browser. So Apple should be embarrassed by this and everyone else should be impressed. And this is just their stupid feedback tool. The rest of the UI is, you know, completely... Uh, higher level than most of the things you see on the web these days. Our second sponsor, by no means a second place sponsor, is iStockPhoto.com, the world's original source for affordable, user-generated, royalty-free stock images, media, and design elements. These guys have got it all, no matter what you're looking for, no matter who you are. They have over 8 million high-quality photos, illustrations, and clips that will let you tell your story. And they also have the most robust search tool in the business. These guys are the real deal. They have the highest quality independent content. They've got two premium collections. They've got a new editorial collection. I mean, seriously, if you need an image, if you need media, whatever it is that you need, an illustration, doesn't matter. iStockphoto.com, go there. And if you sign up for, uh, for a free account, you'll get a 10% discount on 50 or more iStock credits. All you do is go to iStockphoto.com slash 5 by 5 for details. Offer expires July 30th, 2011. Say anything with iStock. Now, as for the circles business, adding people to circles, circles are basically just groups. And I'm not really sold on the idea of circles. I guess you need some kind of branding hook, and it probably sounded good in a meeting. Let's have circles. They're not groups. They're circles. But how are they different than groups? Or how are they different than tagging? They're not really different. The only difference is that little circle UI. And the circle UI doesn't seem to scale beyond like 13 or so people. Because once you get 13 little heads in that little circle on the screen then it's like, these are the people in your circle, plus more that we can't show you because right. they don't fit in a little circle. <laughs> and it's uh, maybe people don't have more than 13 people in each circle, or maybe when you have more than 13, you shouldn't be putting them in a single circle. But uh, again, tech geeks are outliers where we're going to have some sort of group for like, I have an Apple nerds group, and that is, has 
many, many people in it because many people I know are Apple nerds. Uh, we tend to network with more people than uh, maybe on Facebook. Well, people have a lot of Facebook friends too, but uh, you know, if you're just doing with friends and family members, you could be limited. But if you're trying to network professionally, for example, or pseudo professionally, where you're networking with people who are interested in the same topic as you, your groups can get pretty big. But I, I don't think that's a problem. I think they just had to have some kind of hook, and Circles was it. Uh, you know, one of the complaints maybe, I, maybe, I see John a lot on uh, on Twitter and elsewhere is that people who are, I guess, uh, you know, popular or well followed, well liked by others. Their comments and and notes on Google Plus will rise to the top because they're being essentially liked a lot or plused a lot, and that that will essentially dominate people's streams. Yeah, I made I made the mistake of uh, adding some people to circles who are really famous and post a lot, and it's the same effect on Facebook, where if you accidentally friend somebody who is prolific, your entire Facebook whatever they call that thing where you see people post, it will be dominated by them because right. they're just so verbose. Uh, so if you follow someone like that, Facebook has a thing where it just says, stop showing me updates from this person. If that's in Google, I thought I saw that in Google Plus, but then when I look, went looking for it, I didn't find it. So maybe it's just not, I, I just don't know where it is, but they need a feature like that. But yeah, the products like this, you're always, you're always worried about who do I target with it? And famous people or people with a lot of, for example, people with a lot of Twitter followers, use the product differently than people with fewer. Uh, and I think Google Plus is exacerbating a lot of these problems. Like My biggest annoyance with Google Plus is that, uh, well, this is not annoyance. This is actually something interesting. that It adds a, it adds a new toolbar to the top of every Google property they use. Your Google Calendar, your, your Gmail, it all has this big toolbar that integrates all these products together, which is great. Great idea, good integration, cross-product. You can share things from one to the other, stuff like that. But it also has a little square. It's like a notification square. And it, that square turns red with a number in it every time something new happens on Google+. Pretty much anything new. Someone adds you to a circle, turns red. Someone adds a comment to a post that you commented on, turns red. Someone you follow post something, turns red. And if you... I, I don't think... I don't have that many people in circles. I got maybe 20, 30 people in circles. But uh, I, I guess enough people know of me and know my email address to look me up and follow me so every time someone in the world adds me to a circle, that thing turns red. And that right. means the thing is constantly red. It's constantly <laughs> red. And it's like it's like the unread badges on doc icons. Some people just don't like having those badges. I don't like having them. You know, I turn off badges if I can keep them off because there's this compulsion to to uh, I don't know, to serve the badge, to make the badge go away. Whatever the badge is telling you, to unread, read them. So it so it goes back to zero. It's like a to-do list. It's like in your face saying, here's something you have to do, here's something you have to do. Don't forget about this. I don't know what psychological ailment causes people to have anxiety when when badges like that appear or what family of them but i definitely have it so i would and it's constantly read for me because i'm popular enough that uh, every few minutes someone is adding me to a circle at least in the at least in the initial run-up of everyone registering if that continues you know that was my complaint i used the feedback tool to circle that red thing and said do not want show the badge show a number on it but don't make it bright red because it's when it's gray i don't care then the number is there and i'm interested i can look and the worst thing is it's red across all my properties so i have a gmail tab a calendar tab and a plus tab and all three of them have a red <laughs> have a red thing in it and if i click on the red thing in one of them it doesn't become unread immediately in the other ones it's still red over there it's just it's a little bit i mean this is kind of a personal problem and not a problem with their product but i think it's true of a lot of geeks that they don't like those badges that it feels like they're being put upon by the product and being given work to do. Uh, 
And the other thing is that email notifications are turned on for everything by default. Thankfully, they could all be turned off, but that's a weird default to have. Like anytime anything happens in the plus world, someone comments, someone posts, someone signs up, someone changes their profile picture, someone mentions you, someone tags you, all these million things that could possibly happen, you get an email about it, which feels like last century. It's like it does. And it also it seemed it seemed like the options that they give you to control that aren't exactly what you want them to be. They're granular, but they're not quite giving you the options you really want. Yeah, you want to be like, you want, if something is important, you want to be notified of it, but importance doesn't depend on the medium or, you, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like, no, exactly. Or it depends on like the, the person. Like, I don't want to see updates from this famous person because they're very prolific and they're constantly doing updates. So that's not important to me. But if my idol, Andy Hertzfeld, who I put into a circle, ever says anything to me, I immediately want to be emailed about that, you know? That's that's tough to do. At least they just have switches to turn them all off. So I turn them all off. Yeah, but getting an email in a product that's already like it's worse when you're in Gmail. I go I get an email in Gmail telling me about something that happened in Google Plus, but I also have a red badge telling me exactly the same thing because I'm using <laughs> Gmail, which is integrated. You know, it's it's silly. It should at the very least it should detect. Does this person use Gmail? Then don't send them an email for anything because if they're in Gmail, they're going to see the little red thing and know that something happened. And the great thing is when you click that red thing, it doesn't just take you off to another site. It brings down a reasonable UI from which you can see exactly what happened and take actions on it from this drop-down thing. It's really, it's really nice integration. Uh, it, it can be improved in that you do eventually have to leave that to go to the real plus URL to do more things. Especially with me, like it'll say a notification and say, 15 more people added you to circles, but the, but the menu only displays 10, so you don't know if number 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15 are Steve Jobs, you know, John Rubenstein, all these famous people. Because you, you want to know if a famous person adds you to the circle, but people who you have no idea who they are, you're not as interested in. So, uh, and I'm, I'm doing it to do mutual follows. Like, when I want to see who has joined up. Like, when you added me to a circle, I think you were off that list. So I had to go to the full list of people who just added me to circles, scroll down, and I saw your name, and then I could add you back to one of my circles, you know? So that process is a little bit clunky but this is all in the run-up phase where we're all just getting settled in the product and adding people to circles and changing our profile pictures it'll be interesting once all this settles down once we've sort of arranged the room the way we want it metaphorically speaking if we all keep using it or if it just becomes bored uh actually i should mention this i still haven't tried this but i think their killer feature is this hangout thing there's this some I forget. They have a hangout and chats. They have different terms for things. But the bottom line is one of the features lets you declare that you're about to hang out. People hang out with you and there's a live video component optionally to it. So there's live chat and video amongst other people. It's ad hoc. It's not just like, I'm going to hang out. Who wants to hang out with me? Hey, this other person's hanging out with me and I'm hanging out with you. This is a technological representation of what teenagers and young people already do with like IM, like they sit at their house and they're basically hanging out with each other using an IM client and maybe an email client and maybe Skype. This happens all the time now anyway. The fact that Google realized that and integrated it into their product and called it Hangout, when the regular people get a hold of this, this may be something that Facebook doesn't have an answer for because I can imagine if, if teenagers are able to overcome the geekiness barrier and if they they are tempted away from Facebook long enough to try out this Hangout feature, I think they would like it. Uh, this, If there's anything that could pull anybody away from Facebook, it's this type of this type of thing. It's not the circles or all the things that I just described because regular people care nothing about that stuff. But the Hangout feature, as far as I know, has no technological 
or semantic equivalent in the Facebook world, and I think people will love it. And uh, apparently, fa- the, the, I read a rumor. I don't know. I don't have the link handy, so it probably won't be in the show notes. But I just read that Facebook has partnered with Skype to do essentially a similar, I don't want to say the same thing, but that, that you'll be able to do something just like that within Facebook like next week. Yeah, oh, I'm sure, you know, the competitor competitors are, you know, they're not standing still. That I think the advantage Google has is that you don't have to be technically savvy to pull up a web page, but you do have to be more technically savvy to know what Skype is, to download it, to get whatever plug like the fact that it all happens in a web browser lowers the barrier to entry. Uh and it's very difficult to do video in a web browser, so Google has its own web browser where it can make that happen in an efficient manner. So I would imagine Google has an advantage, a first mover advantage certainly, but also an advantage in that it's easier for people to try this out. Maybe the barrier is you have to have Google Chrome. I don't know if it works in IE or whatever most people are using, but even just downloading a new browser, that's a one-time thing, and it's probably easier to get Chrome installed than it is to get Skype set up. You know, Again, this leans towards geeks who already have Macs, and every Mac has a microphone and a camera in it, and PCs don't. So maybe I'm overestimating the value of this among regular people who just don't have the hardware for it. But uh, of all the features they have, that is the one that stands out to me as the one that uh, could be popular with the non-geeks. We'll we'll see how it turns out. So that's all I've got on Google+. Uh, Actually, I do have more, but that's that's the, the meat of it for now. Do we have time or do you need to go? I probably need to go unless you have something short you want to get to before. Well, I, I just wanted to hear your general take on the Final Cut Pro 10 thing. I did listen to you. I'm way, way behind in podcasts because I've been too busy writing, but I did listen to, to the talk show with uh, Sandy yeah. and heard his take on it. I, you have a different thing opinion? That struck me, the thing that struck me when listening to it is everybody, everybody's so indignant when the application that they like changes. You know what I mean? Like I was, I'm all indignant about the Finder changing because I like the old one. But everyone else is like, who cares? I don't even know what the finder is, right? <laughs> and, and, and when and when there's when there's a big group of people, like the, the the video editors are just like just so upset. And it's I feel like saying, Oh, so you know, when it's your favorite application that gets changed, now it's a big problem. But when anybody else has a problem, you're like, Oh, you're big babies, right? <laughs> it's, everyone thinks that, I guess it's tied up and finder doesn't affect how you live. So these people Video editors may not be tech people. They invest a considerable amount of effort in learning how to use a particular product. And, and if it becomes clear that that product is no longer useful to them or they're scared that it's no longer useful to them, they're faced with the prospect of learning a different product. Like the skills that make them valuable have been devalued by Apple's actions. And that pisses people off. And that's, that's where all the upsetness comes from. And, uh, Sandy said it himself in the thing. It's like I, he doesn't have time to learn something new. But... If this is going to be the long-term thing, now he's got to learn something new because if they don't, if they don't, if they decided they don't want to serve his needs, that's you know that's something that's on Apple. That's what they want to do. Fine, but that means that he's now have to has to do something. So it's like I trusted Apple enough to learn their product, thinking I would build my career on it, and now it's pulling the rug out from under me. Now that's the perception. The reality, I think, is that all these people complaining will eventually come around and and the reason i think they'll come around is because apple's competitors are so incompetent Uh, you know people who love avid love avid and say that it's great but avid versus apple i would take the 
one tenth of Apple's attention is probably worth 100% of Avid's attention in terms of product quality and uh, you know future proofing. And as many people pointed out, if you are a big Avid fan, you kind of got screwed by them when they more or less abandoned the Mac. So it's not like Avid is is the wonderful daddy who will always take care of you. There's you know everybody, every vendor will eventually screw you on the long, <laughs> long breath because. You know, the world changes. The business has changed. The, the top dog in any industry changes over time. So you're not going to be able to stick with something forever. Uh, you're always going to have to learn something new. Just ask the people who learned the pre-digital uh, nonlinear editing systems, the many ones of those from different vendors. They all had to learn something new. In fact, Final Cut Pro was the new thing to learn for a lot of people. It's like, oh, can I learn this Final Cut Pro thing? I already know Avid or I already, already know the Moviola or whatever the hell it was in the 60s. You know? <laughs> Technology changes, right? So... As for reading into what Apple thinks about, like, also, oh, are they leaving the pro market or are they not interested because it doesn't have enough customers? Or I don't try to psychoanalyze them too much about that. I, I think the the obvious answer is the correct one, in that basically they think the new ways are better than the old ways, and they they are willing as a company to take whatever hit they're going to take by saying we are not going to support as many of the old ways as we can possibly get away with. Now, you may scream and yell and say, oh, we need this particular XML export and we need features X, Y, and Z, and we will add them back grudgingly, but we're trying to move forward. And their bet is that they can move the industry forward without losing their entire customer base. How much of it are they going to lose? What's an acceptable loss? Will it be balanced out by gains in the prosumer space? You know, but this is the, that's the gambit they're doing, and they do it all the time. They did it with you know, floppy disk, USB ports. It's a bet on their part, saying, we're going to move forward. We're going to make progress. We're going to do what we think is the future of the way this industry should work, and we're going to bet that our losses will not be so bad that it will make it turn out to be an overall bad move. Well, that, that's somewhat like the... I put an article in the, the show links that Somebody, I guess, the, the guy he went on to, is it Posterous? I don't know how to pronounce that you word. You know that, the, the site. Yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I guess the guy that works on that or founded that used to be at Apple, and he worked on he worked on Final Cut Pro for a number of years, a number of years ago, maybe back at the time that Final Cut Pro Ten was maybe being thought about and conceived of. And in this article, he writes that essentially, Apple just doesn't care about pro users. You sort of alluded to that or mentioned that is you know he they care about the people who are running around with high definition cameras who want to go and make something that's sort of semi pro but not quite pro and they're a consumer much more a consumer facing company today in 2011 than they were in 2008 for example and I don't I read that article and I don't buy his argument you don't think you so why. I don't the one that's saying Apple doesn't care about the pros it, when you do the math and say like Pros are such a small percentage. There's many more regular consumers. The pros aren't important financially. Apple doesn't work like that. Apple does not work. Uh, it's true that Apple does want something that they can sell to millions and millions of people. They only want hit products. But if that was their overriding number one directive, they would never have created Final Cut Pro in the first place. Yeah, because, but maybe the Apple of today is saying, you know, we never should no. have created it in the first the, place. The, the Apple that bought and fostered Final Cut Pro was the one that was introducing the iMac and the iPod the most consumer of consumerist products that they've ever created. All right. Apple is the thing that Apple, you know, Apple doesn't care about the pros. That's the hurt feelings of the people who now are put upon to learn something new are feeling. And that's their manifestation. Oh, they don't care about us. And people saying inside, yeah, Apple doesn't care about you. 
not that Apple doesn't care about professionals. They want to change the way professionals work. They think this way of doing video editing is better than the old way. And professional video editors disagree because professional video editors just want to do their job. And a lot of them, they don't care about the future of video editing. They care about getting their project done on time and on budget. You know what I mean? And if they can't use your products because it's missing what they consider essential features, then they're, they're pissed off. And so that translates to they don't care. Apple cares so much about professional video editing that it wants to make professional video editing better, more simple, fewer legacy formats, fewer integrating with dumb products that Apple probably thinks are too complicated and crappy. They want to simplify, make it better, make it... And as a side effect, yes, that does make it more accessible for prosumers. And as a side effect, yes, that does make it... it opens up a much bigger market to them. But that's what Apple wants to do with everything. They don't like the idea that there is some thing that you do that is so complicated to do that only a small number of people can do it. And th think about their development environment. Like they want to make developing easier. They want to make interface builder better, easier to lay out GUIs. You know, there's guidelines. You, you you know, first you don't have to to program in lines of code to lay out your GUI. Next has an interface builder that's GUI, right? So that's that's lowering the bar. Then there, you know, we'll have snaps and guides to show you exactly how Aqua layout has to be because it's too much to ask for people to read the guidelines and exactly space things. You know, uh, and they're just. Everything. They're always trying to make anything that's complicated easier. And this applies everywhere. And it applies to industries where people are comfortable with the way things work now. And they just wish they had a version of Final Cut Pro 7 that was faster, better looking, and had more features. And Apple wants to eliminate uh, complexities and make the process of video editing better. And their bet is that as cranky as people will be, the net win of making the process of professional video editing simpler will pay off in the long run. It's very difficult to tell whether they succeed, but uh, the, the don't care part that I do agree with is that if Apple lost all the professional video editors, all the hardcore ones making Hollywood movies, they would probably not do a big giant reversal. It's obvious they're doing a small reversal to try, to try not to lose all those pros, but they think at this point they think they're right. They think this, our way of doing video editing is better than the Final Cut Pro 7 way was. And they're going to stick to it as much as they possibly can. And if they shed pros, fine. Uh, at a certain point, if no professionals use it, well, then that just becomes the next version of iMovie or something. Uh, and that would be uh, probably considered a failure. Apple lost the pro video editing market because they didn't bend over backwards enough to support the legacy stuff through the transition. Uh, the same thing with Mac OS X. If they didn't bend over backwards enough with Carbon and everything to support Microsoft Office and Photoshop, that would have killed the platform. But... This is the reverse where they're bending over backwards for the small minority of people so they don't lose that market and they're trying to gain the larger one. But really, I think Apple's goal with Final Cut Pro is to make professional video editing not as complicated and simpler. And they're trying to do it single-handedly based on the clout they have with the success of Final Cut. Uh, and they're trying to do it at the same time as not completely losing the professional market. The, the key thing to notice here will be when schools that teach people video start using the new version of Final Cut. Because that's why a lot of people in the industry know it now, because they learned it in school, because Final Cut was cheaper than Avid, and you could, you could run it on a Mac. And so if you were learning video editing, everyone learned on Final Cut, and when they went into the industry, they kept using Final Cut. Uh, once they start teaching the previous version, if they start teaching with the previous version, then those people coming in the industry, they won't be pissed about how the new version of Final Cut is different than 7, because they never used 7, right? Maybe they weren't born when 7 was introduced. Uh, if, if, they, if Apple hangs in there long enough and gets their product into schools, this will eventually turn over in their favor just the way the Final Cut did. 
because they've, they've lowered the price again, lowered the barrier entry again, digital download, 300 bucks instead of 1000 simpler to use, easier for more people to get into video editing. If they don't completely lose the pro market and they can still keep this as a teaching tool, they will be successful with this gambit to simplify video editing despite all the, the crankiness. Uh, that's, that's where I think this is going. And, and I do feel for the pro video editors. I, I have sympathy for them. I've had applications that I love changed in ways that I don't like. Uh, to simplify it for the other people, and I didn't need it simplified. I like the way it worked. I just wanted it to be faster. Uh, but that's that's called they call that progress. Sometimes it hurts. <laughs> okay, you're gonna get some email. I don't. Know. There's no professional video editors listening to this. <laughs> now you're definitely gonna get some email. Right, wait, what have I, what have I said they're gonna disagree with? We'll I, see. I agree we'll have to bad, see. But... We'll wait for the emails. All right, be a fun week. And have a good week, John. You too. People, two more things. There are two little little notes I want to make here. All right. One of them is that we get, we get for some reason, on this show more than the others, maybe because we refer to them more. People are, are frequently emailing to ask what the show notes are when we talk about show notes. And I feel like we've addressed this a few times, but maybe it's worth repeating. Uh, when we say the show notes, maybe it would be more correct to say the show links than notes, because when we say notes, we really mean links. And every week, usually it's John, sometimes I'll add a couple, we will find links for the stories, articles, and points that we talk about. If John mentions some kind of obscure engineering fact, he'll find the Wikipedia entry for it and put it into the links. So if you want to find those, if you want to see those, you can go to 5by5.tv slash hypercritical and uh, find the episode there on that page that you were just listening to if you weren't playing it from the website already, and you'll see a whole bunch of list of links on that page. There's a little summary and everything else that you need to follow along. Do you put them in order, John? I do. I try to keep them in the order that they were mentioned in the show. Because yeah, there's drag and drop for that. Yes, there is. And Although uh, the, the background colors don't yeah, change. I know. The background, are, they're alternating row colors. I'm not, you know, they don't change. You should have it fade from one color to the other as it slides into its new position. Get right on that. And uh, or I'll just remove all the colors altogether. You could do that too. Okay, it would be less wrong if I did that. It's true. And uh, people can go there and they can follow along with us as we go. So that's what I mean when we say show notes. You really should say show links. But that's how you do it. You find the episode uh, number and dig right in. Now, if you wanted to, you could subscribe to the show uh, in an RSS reader, and in that case, you'll see all the links right there. In addition, that's your choice. You can do it either way. It won't, it won't download the enclosure by default, so you'd be fine. And uh, the, the second thing was a lot of the time uh, we will we'll be, well, you know what, maybe, maybe we don't even need to mention it. That one is enough. I think that's enough. I was going to say that uh, if you subscribe to the feed, I am frequently adding and correcting uh, links after the show is ah, right. put out. So if there's some show notes link that you that I mentioned that's not there, check the website because I will occasionally say, oh, I forgot to put that link in or someone will send me a note that I forgot to put a link in and I will add it. This is the living web, John. It's a living yes, web. that's right. Whereas RSS, if you just get the feed and your feed reader doesn't pull it again, you won't see the new link. So 5by5.tv slash hypercritical. That's all you need to know. That's all you got to know. And that's it. And that's it for this week. We'll be back next week. Yep. Have a good week, John. You too. 
So thanks again to our sponsors, fieldnotesbrand.com and iStockphoto.com for making the show possible. Thanks so much, as always, to you guys for listening. Uh, those of you who have rated the show on iTunes, uh, thank you. It really, really helps people find out about the show. Uh, those of you who have donated uh, at 5x5.tv slash donate, uh, thank you. Uh, really, really thank you so much for doing that. It really makes uh, it a lot easier for us to keep doing these, these shows for you. Uh, we will be back next week. Uh, if you listen to this before you celebrate the 4th of July, have a good one. If, if you're listening to this afterwards, I hope you had a good one. And uh, we'll see you all again soon. Thanks. Thanks.